There's somebody uh, in the past called Dwight D. Eisenhower mm -hmm. in the US. And he was talking about um, uh, war and battles and things. And sort of paraphrasing, um, he said something along the lines were, plans are useless, planning is everything. Now, I wouldn't fully agree that plans are useless, but actually going through the process of planning is absolutely key. Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Business Continuity Podcast. It's been a recurring theme in the series so far that for the uninitiated, BC and DR can feel like abstract and unwieldy concepts. In this episode, we're going to nail some of that down and look at the point at which BC and DR planning stop existing as hypothetical concepts and start taking shape as actions. This time, we're going to look at the very practical process of making recovery plans and, crucially, testing they work. From a standing start, continuity planning can feel a bit performative. Between all the different schools of thought and variations in planning methodology, the primary activity common to all of them is essentially a thought experiment, just imagining what if and working backwards. That's why structure's important, not only to give your planning a more solid framework to operate within, but to encourage buy-in from skeptical peers and reassure decision makers that DR and BC planning is both a legitimate use of resources and relevant to your organization's interests. We'll hear from our experts a little later on about how to structure planning sessions, who to invite, and what kind of obstacles and outcomes you can expect. But for now, let's hear some early reassurance from Vicky Gavin on why it's best to keep things simple. So I, <clears throat> I, I think lots of people object to doing things on a lot of grounds. I think, I think if you really start to peel back the skin on that, what you find is they don't know how to get started because it doesn't have to be complicated. A business continuity plan is a list of the critical things you do and what you're going to do without them. So that's the bare bones of a plan. A list of the things your business does, the systems and assets required to do them, and instructions to follow in their absence. Next, here's Mel Gosling, talking about why it's important to communicate those plans outwards before testing they work by practically rehearsing the steps within them. You've got to start simply, and starting simply is... Does everyone understand what this plan is? Can they use it? Do they follow it? Has it got the right things in it? Um, and then you can move on to, you know, can they use it to respond to an incident? Is there anything missing from it? What do they need to add to it? And then you can go on to, well, should we actually test to see if some of the stuff here actually works? You know, can we call these phone numbers and they're the right ones? Um, can we recover these systems in the timescale we said we could? Uh, can we move people to this recovery site when we said we could move them to them? Uh, and then to actually rehearse them, to actually move people to a recovery site, to actually do some sort of systems recovery. Uh, and it takes a long time to, to, to run through that. Uh, so it's not something simple. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of resource. And I have to say, I find it depressing that so few organisations put so little effort into it. Mel advised starting simply for a reason. Once you unpick all the tasks involved in formulating and testing a continuity plan, it quickly adds up to a lot of work. People underestimate continuity and recovery all the time. What seems simple on paper can be incredibly complex or just arduous in practice. That's why testing and exercising is so vital. I always go back to the first time I, I really did for this insurance company a, a disaster recovery test. My technical manager at the time told me he could recover all our systems within a couple of days. And it took him a month to recover the systems. <laughs> I asked Mel why his estimate was so off. 
One, he was optimistic. Uh, two, he made too many assumptions about things, which a lot of people do. I mean, take a simple example now. If you had to recover, just say, an ordinary personal computer from beginning to end, you'd say, oh, it wouldn't take long. I'd nip out to the local PC world, buy myself one, standard off-the-shelf one, uh, load my programs and data on, and away I go. It'd probably take you at least 24 hours to do that. So imagine what it takes with a, you know, <laughs> a huge data center. It's because people forget the problems that they come up against. They got the wrong bits of software. You know, they have to buy things they didn't think they had to buy. Things are incompatible. You know, it's a myriad of, uh, of problems and issues come along. It comes back to expectation versus reality. A lot of continuity is really about trying to account for the unknown. Planning and testing is a way to quantify those uncertainties. The problem is that during peacetime, when everything's working as it should be, Potential risks are invisible without scrutiny. That's why in practice, the first step to becoming more resilient isn't actually sitting down and making continuity plans. It's attaining buy-in from relevant decision makers to do so. If that sounds like a hard sell, it's because it is. But Stuart Dugard has a pretty simple analogy to overcome initial objections. Well, I do remember, so you've got this multi-million pound system that was being deployed and I remember going into a meeting with the executives of the company and uh, they said, oh, it just works. So, so why, why do we have to test that it works? My response was, well, you've all got houses, you've all got insurance. And thankfully, during the testing, we actually found that uh, the, there was a big error within the way the database had been put onto the server. And uh, so had the server ever gone down and needed recovering, they would have wiped out the database. Uh, through the recovery steps. So, well, interrogating from a, a layman's point of view, finding a test plan and executing it, I think, is vital. That last point is important. Poorly conceived recovery plans are just as likely to disrupt your organisation as the disaster itself. Testing a plan isn't just about gauging how effective the recovery is, it's also about observing the operational consequences from a safe distance. The same is true of more practical tests. Physically running through something as simple as a fire drill can reveal hidden gaps that just aren't clear from the written version. So one test I did was um, I was standing outside during a, uh, the six monthly fire drill and I realized that nobody had laptops, nobody had uh, mobile phones, nobody had jackets. Um, they're standing in the car park and if the building had burnt down, then they wouldn't have access to cars, they wouldn't have access to money, they wouldn't be able to get home. And yet the strategy was if the building burnt down, people would work from home. Also, the other thing I then suddenly realized that nobody, if they didn't have their laptops, they didn't have access to the continuity plan. What I did was did a, a test, so I managed to persuade facilities to do another fire drill. And then it was five minutes after the uh, continuity crisis continuity test started. The fire drill goes off, everyone goes outside. And then I said, right, this is the test now. So time is as now, weather is now. We're all outside. We've got five fire engines uh, hosing down the building. What are you going to do about it? And it was then when they realized they had a big gap. Now, hopefully it's starting to become clear why I'm suggesting new starters take a simple approach. Continuity and recovery can be intensely complicated, particularly at the larger scale. Multi-site, multinational organizations spend a lot of money on bespoke continuity consultancy and tailored software tools designed to account for a myriad of systems and global interdependencies. Now, this is overkill for the majority of organizations, but that's not to say there aren't some easy and useful tools out there. And if you'll permit me a very brief plug at the end of the podcast, Databarracks has a bunch of interactive tools and practical resources designed just for this. 
You can either skip to the end to hear more or go to databarracks.com forward slash resources and click on tools to see what's there. Anyway, for a lot of the people I spoke to, simplicity was key, at least to get people on board. Lengthy engagements and impenetrable documentation are precisely what inspires disinterest in so many boardrooms. Once again, this is often more down to prejudice than experience. In fact, for John Robinson, it was actually a dependency map that piqued the interest of a passing CEO, resulting in a much more significant level of engagement across the organisation. I sat with an organisation based in, in the City of London. Um, I sat with their quality manager who looked after uh, continuity. And we worked for a couple of days building a, a map of the business, just a dependency map. The CEO stuck his head around the door and said, what's that, <laughs> as you would. We explained, he then got us to present it to the rest of his team. So for a whole day, the top team of the business spent that day unplanned going through that model because it was the first time they'd ever seen a picture of the business in that way where they could actually see the, the interdependencies between what were otherwise fairly impermeable silos. And you can see where the concentrations uh, of activity and hence risk might be. You can see where things can be improved. You can see where the financial channels are coming down through the top, where all the benefit for the company actually enters, enters the organization. And therefore, potentially, um, helping other decisions to be made. So, if at its most basic level, continuity planning is just having a conversation, what could go wrong and how would it affect us? Let's look at the two main ways people often choose to frame this discussion, according to scenarios or according to their impacts. Now, scenario-based planning looks at different events, like the ones from the London Risk Register in the previous episode, and focuses on planning specific responses to them. On the other hand, impact-based planning takes a bottom-up approach and looks at not the events themselves, but their consequences to the organisation. Now, this can be a more scalable way to think about continuity because several different scenarios will have common impacts. Now, I should stress, there's no right or wrong answer here. Lots of people I spoke to preferred impact-based planning because it enables a consolidation of plans. But if you're just starting out, scenarios can be a helpful jumping-off point. Here's Vicky Gavin on why she prefers impact-based planning at The Economist. We don't do scenario-based planning. So I don't have plans for flood, fire, flu, um, alien invasion, solar spots, etc. We have impact-based plans. So we plan for our premises not being available. Whether it's a smoking hole in the ground or there's a, a police cordon around it makes not one bit of difference, it's unavailable. We plan for our critical resources not being available so that the systems, the suppliers, um, the communications channels. Um, and we plan for our people not being able to do their jobs. So that doesn't mean stuck at home, it means physically the people can't do it. Um, they may be on strike, they could be sick with flu. Um, it doesn't matter what causes the things to be unavailable. All that matters is it is. And by planning for those three things, we can actually be ready for anything. Now, the way that you make sure that you're ready for anything is then you have to layer over it practiced crisis management. Um, and, and I can't say strongly enough how important it is to make sure that your organization has practiced responding to crises, both real and fictional. Um, the more fictional ones you do, the better, the higher the likelihood that you'll do well at the real stuff. Now here's Michael Faber, walking through a practical exercise that draws out the impacts of an individual scenario. 
sit down for an hour in a room and just give yourself a scenario. And, and a very simple scenario is the fire alarm bell has just gone off in your building, in your office, um, and you have to evacuate the building. And you cannot take anything with you. It could be that you're not at your desk at the time, you're in a conference room or whatever it is. So you just take whatever you have with you and you go out of the building. So you can't take your laptop with you, you can't get any special papers, etc. And you go and stand outside and for whatever the reason, and, and again we're talking about effect not cause, for whatever reason you can never return. And whatever was in the office has been destroyed. That recommendation to sit down and just think through hypothetical events was a very common suggestion among the people I spoke to. It's a good jumping off point. It costs nothing but time and it's really the crux of all continuity planning. But what does that exercise actually look like? And who should you invite to the discussion? How should you structure the conversation? Vicky Gavin has a framework she likes to apply and a deeply inclusive approach to building out crisis teams that ensures everyone across the organization is equally prepared. Um, so we have a crisis management framework that we call SADI. Um, and SADI stands for, and you will understand my spelling issues in a moment, situation, impacts, actions, decisions, issues. That's our standard meeting agenda. The crisis team is formed at the time of the crisis based on who needs to be involved. Usually the most senior business person is automatically the crisis leader. Um, so depending on where it is in the world and or which business line it impacts, that determines who's leading. That person then chooses who their scribe is going to be, because scribes are very important. Um, we elect an information lead, so somebody who is responsible for making sure that they're following the emerging situation and impacts. Um, they elect a communications lead, somebody who is focusing on making sure all communications are consistent and that we're communicating to all the people that we need to. Um, they don't necessarily do all the communicating, just coordinate it. Um, and then finally an operations lead, somebody who is responsible for making sure that we're actually yeah, getting out our newspaper, um, delivering our research, whatever the case may be. Now, occasionally they'll call in other individuals, you know, legal and HR and so on, who they may need. But those five roles are key and they're determined at the start of the crisis. So just to recap on those five roles, because I think this is an excellent structure. That's a leader to make decisions, a scribe to record those decisions and their outcomes, someone to keep track of the situation as it develops, someone to manage internal and external communication, and someone to maintain business as usual operations. Now this next bit from Vicky is really smart. Because we don't know who those five are going to be, in addition to doing exercising with our top team, I run exercises for everybody who works at The Economist. Everybody from the tea lady in Hong Kong through to the CEO is given at least one opportunity every year to do some crisis exercising and to practice responding to crisis. So that if you're the person who's in the frame, you know what to do and if you're the person who's not in the frame, you're on the edges looking in, you know how we're going to handle it. So that crisis actually becomes a business as usual activity and you hardly notice it happening. Um, now I say that, it's painful at the time, don't get me wrong, um, but it, it's not the, what are we gonna do? It's a, okay, this is what needs doing. You're gonna do this, you're gonna do that, you're gonna do the next thing and we move forward. We make sure that everybody gets invited. 
Um, not everybody accepts, but at least we've given them the opportunity. Okay. Um, and if nothing else, it means that they know we have a crisis management framework in place. If I go back to 9-11, that was one of the things that struck me is that the vast majority of people had no idea that we had plans and a crisis leadership team who were deciding how we were going to react. And so being good managers were taking it upon themselves to react. And that's not what you want happening in a crisis. You want coordination, you want people chain of command. I mean, it becomes a military operation during a crisis. Um, and as long as everybody knows, then it works really well. Now, I love this approach. If continuity is about quantifying the unknown, minimizing nasty surprises, to put it simply, then it makes perfect sense to push out that knowledge as broadly as possible. Paul Butcher from Fujitsu also likes to test a range of people from around the organization, not only to educate them around recovery plans, but to see how they cope with the high pressure of fast-moving recovery tests. Going from the walkthrough, get the understanding to, to then really testing the process and the plans and the procedures, but also beginning to test the, the individuals as well, how they actually going to operate under, under that stress. Uh, and what, what's going to come out on that. And then you find out whether you've got the right people in the right, uh, right team. Understanding how people cope with a crisis is more a matter of soft observation than fulfilling some ideal psychological profile. Just watching how, how they cope. You know, we, we might have seen these individuals through a number of uh, exercises, but then once under pressure, how are they then, uh, then responding? Is it something that they go all quiet and don't really rise to the challenge, whereas before they might be leading it or... Um, somebody else very noisy and you know shouts everybody else down. So I think it's more of the being aware of how they're um, how they're acting uh, within that uh, that environment, especially when uh, you know the pressures uh, pressures on you. Now Michael Faber takes this inclusivity one step further. He suggested that it's not only useful to cast a wide net when running tests, but that opening up planning at a more junior level of the organisation can reveal interesting insights at the operational level that a more senior team may have missed everybody's voice is, is worth hearing. Well, you can, you can do two things. You can do a sort of almost, I shouldn't say this in the finance sector, a big bang approach, um, which is that you have all areas represented. If you do that, you just have to be careful of a few things. One of which is that often people at a less senior level will be reticent in, in actually voicing their opinion. Um, so, if you do that, then you have to make people comfortable. You have to put them in an environment and say, you know, that th there is no, that there is no wrong message here. There is no wrong thing to say. If you've got anything to say, say it. Mm -hmm. But you have to be mindful. Um, so sometimes it's appropriate maybe to to separate things out. So you might have a board level type event, and you might have a senior management, and and you might have a, a, an operations type thing. This inclusivity shouldn't be limited to the beginning of planning either. Continuity plans should be tested and rehearsed at least annually, and Stuart Dugard is mindful of the diminishing returns in testing the same plan with the same people. The other thing that's um, not, not good, I think, is just repeating the test. Although you're getting the same people involved, it becomes business as usual, it's wrong. You need to have different people involved. If you're doing the same scenario, get different people involved. Um, so I've repeated a, a business test whereby the scenario was the same with the exception of that I've said to the uh, crisis commander, you're ill, go away. 
And so therefore, he's had to go away and phone up his deputy and to get, bring the deputy in and to test the deputy. Um, that's, that's one of the things also within IT testing. I've always said, well, sorry, you were the same database person that were, was in for the last test. I want somebody different um, and to bring different people in so that you're actually just pushing out the boundaries of knowledge and experience. So let's pull back and look at a real example of scope for a second. A lot of the advice in this series so far has been geared towards smaller organizations looking to get started. So let's go to the other end of the scale for a moment. What does it take to plan for something like the Olympics? How much time is needed? How many people? And what about effectiveness? How does communication work on that scale? And how many actual incidents were there? The planning for the Olympics had been taking place since the announcement that London was the host city. That was 2005. Um, so it had been going on for a long time. There was a really intense sort of program. We were getting towards the end of the planning and starting to have to uh, provide that assurance that London was ready. Um, so it came at a time when we were trying to prove that London had got this capability for emergency response. It was huge. I think it's really difficult to pin down a number. There were that many people working on it. Um, within our team, we'd probably got uh, 10, 12 people working, uh, not specifically on the Olympics, but on, on different elements of it. Um, but across London, uh, I'd say within the public sector, maybe sort of 300, 350 people working on the Olympics mm -hmm. just for planning for emergencies. Uh, and then there's people doing sort of transport planning and all sorts of other things. Um, so it, it was a real industry at the time. From the arrival of some of the first dignitaries and officials in June, we were uh, operating in a uh, control centre, the London Operations Centre, and running right the way through till the, the parade at the end of, of athletes. Uh, I think our team responded to 156 different incidents. So although there were, I think hopefully what came across was it was a really smooth running event, um, that nothing really that bad happened. Actually, we were doing a lot behind the scenes to, to sort of jump on issues early so, so they didn't become bigger. Um, the, there was, I, I think, one of the largest fires that uh, London Fire Brigades ever responded to on the day of the closing ceremony, very close to the Olympic Stadium. And it was something that we planned for. So we had a really effective response to it. It didn't interrupt the opening ceremony, uh, the closing ceremony. You know, there, were, there was this perception that the Olympics was, was really smooth running, but there were definite incidents during that time. I thought that was kind of amazing. One of London's largest ever fires happened almost invisibly on the day of the closing ceremonies, owing to the fact that there was a rehearsed plan in place. We'll come back to this idea that once you've planned for a disaster event, the event itself ceases to qualify as a disaster later on. For Matt, though, the merits of planning and testing aren't necessarily limited to the outputs. The process alone can also be a fantastic catalyst to improve things like communication across the business. I think there's some definite value in it. Not all of that value is about testing the plan, I think. Certainly we've found that just bringing people together to talk about issues, whether they resolve the issue or not through that sort of test or simulation, actually is sort of tangential but you've you've sort of prompted people to network to be aware of who they might need to talk to in in that sort of crisis knowing who's at the end of the phone it is actually there's some real value in that it's hard to measure it but trust and confidence that, that the person at the other end of the phone understands what you're talking about gets your issue the, there's real value in doing that in terms of can you ever test reality not really but i think you can identify 
specific objectives. You know, if you've got a concern about a particular element of your plan or response, uh, I think there's things that you can do to really focus on that and, and make sure that you get as much learning from that as you can. Likewise, Stuart Jugid was keen to emphasise that the results of the test aren't as important as the fact that you've completed one. The point of a test isn't to prove that you know everything. If anything, the reverse is true. Every test I do, it's always preceded with the comment of failure is not bad. So I think uh, failure is only a uh, failure of a test is only bad if you don't do any actions to recover or to or re retest and prove that well actually it was an anomaly or yes we've uh, we've corrected this issue and now retest. So let's look at another practical use case for planning, not necessarily at a smaller scale, but maybe with less urgency. After spending three months commuting back and forth from New York to London, Vicky Gavin needed a rest. So she was assigned to an ostensibly simple project in an organisation in which, perhaps in retrospect, continuity wasn't a priority one issue. When I came back to the UK, um, as you can imagine, after three months of commuting to New York, I was a tad jet lagged. So I was given a really, really simple assignment to do. Um, please put, make sure we, we've got in place business continuity plans for these um, 10 uh, back office critical systems. So I went out and I started collecting plans and discovered that in fact, we only had three. And so I told the person I was working for at the time and she said, ooh, let, let's go beyond the critical 10. Look, let's look at all of the back office systems. And there were just north of 100 back office systems. And for those 100 systems, there were still only three business continuity plans. At this point, we started to get a little bit worried. And so went to the, the then head of business continuity and said, we're worried. We've looked in the back office and across the back office, there are only three business continuity plans for the recovery of our critical systems. We suspect the situation will be the same in the front office and think you might want to look. <laughs> and we're told, yeah, okay, that, thank you very much, go away. And then less than two weeks after that meeting, at one of our data centers, we had what's called a buzz bar fail. Um, a buzz bar is sort of the main um, power junction to the data center. So we lost all power to the data center. Um, we lost about a third to a half of our front office systems, um, as well as all the back office systems that were there. Guess how many recovery plans there were? three. <laughs> the same three that I had warned them existed. So all of a sudden, early July, the year after 9-11, we, we realized as an organization, we don't have DR plans. And I was asked to take on a project to make sure we had DR plans in place for all of our systems, all 2000 of them, um, by, oh, September 11th, because we think there might be a copycat event. So much for a rest. So I asked Vicky about the recommendations she made and how she arrived at them. How do you go about prioritizing on a project of this scale? And how can you incorporate those priorities into efficient planning exercises? Uh, I made a lot of recommendations. <laughs> um, number one was this project to get plans in place. Um, we took the desktop tools that I had developed. These were fairly simple, an access database, for example. And expanded them further. I say we, that's kind of in the royal sense. 
I took the desktop tools and expanded them further and applied them to business continuity planning because I discovered that what, what we'd been doing up till that point, so we would go to our IT teams and say, what systems are important to the business? And they'd go, okay, what went down last week? Um, and they yelled about, those are the important systems. And then we'd go to the business and say, system X is an important system to you. How quickly do you need it back? And neither group could actually answer these questions. So I made the radical proposal that we ask the business, business questions, and IT, IT questions. They looked at me skeptically, but were willing to give it a shot. So I went to the business and said, what are the critical things you do? Make me a list. And they'd go, oh, well, we do this, 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 and this. And, and what systems do you need to do that? Oh, well, yeah, to make trades, we need this system. To settle trades, we need that system. And they could tell you exactly what systems they needed to do those tasks because they're thinking about their business processes. Then I could go to IT and say, how quickly can we bring that system back? What's its capability? And IT could say, oh, well, the last time it failed, it took us 12 hours. Or, you know, we, we've practiced and we can do that one in four, as the case may be. And then I could go back to the business and say, you need to keep, start doing that task in four hours, but IT can't get that system back for 12. You've got a couple of options here. You can come up with a manual workaround, Fig figure out what you're going to do without it. Or you can come up with some money and improve the recovery capability. I mean, really, th those are your options because it's not going to recover faster unless somebody pays for it. 99% of the time, the decision was, ah, well, okay, until it comes back up, this is what we'll do. And all of a sudden, we had business continuity plans that were really grounded in reality. And because I was collecting all this information into a database, I could then turn around and give IT a list of the critical systems in order of priority according to the criticality of the tasks that they supported and the interdependencies between them and say, this first, then this, then the next one. And we could, we could then get great buy-in from the business because they really felt when they went to, down to the, the test center that we actually understood what it was they were trying to do and that the systems that they really needed were there. I thought that example from Vicky was really telling. So much of this podcast has been about dispelling many of the popular misconceptions around continuity, and it's important to carry that sentiment forward when asking colleagues to assess their recovery needs. Continuity can be intuitive, and Vicky saw the best results when she avoided abstract continuity practices and instead framed the discussion around direct and personalized questions. What do you do, and what do you need to do it? Answer those questions, and you've automatically generated effective recovery objectives for your organization. So, thanks for listening to this episode of the BCP Cast. If anything you've heard today has piqued your interest, I'd really encourage you to take a look at some of the interactive tools and practical exercises on the Data Barracks website. They're all free to use, and they're designed to help organizations of all readiness and maturity levels develop more effective continuity plans. There's a cost of IT downtime calculator, a runbook template, a responsibility chart that outlines who should do what in a crisis, there are tools to map your technology dependencies, uh, the different risks you face. There's even a recovery simulator to practice your disaster response. 
take a look at databarracks.com forward slash resources and click on tools. Now, Michael's one final piece of advice has already been covered by a few people. To sit down with your peers around a table just for an hour and simply to have a conversation. So instead of hearing that again, I'm going to summarize two other quick tips Michael covered during our interview. First of all, if you're going to plan, try and get out of the office. A few different people mentioned that putting people in a different environment means that they think differently. If your planners are sitting in their day-to-day -day office, it can be more difficult to imagine the actual consequences of being displaced from it. Second, and this one was really interesting, if you're in London, the emergency services provide free planning advice and testing assistance. For more traditional scenarios, such as fire, public unrest or counter-terrorism, contact the relevant service and arrange to get some help. It's a great free resource and it can add real gravity to continuity planning sessions. So again, thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show so far, subscribing on iTunes and leaving a review would really help us dedicate more time to producing more episodes. Next time, we're going to take a look at what happens when the best laid plans go awry, as we cover some of the worst disasters our experts have come across, and examine how the plans designed to protect against their consequences held up. So thanks again, and I'll leave you with Michael. Again, the other thing I'd say, particularly for smaller organisations or for any organisation that wants to uh, not spend more money than it needs to, um, uh, in terms of some of the more traditional threats when you're running a scenario, um, a um, cost-effective way of doing it is asking the emergency services for assistance and advice. They are free. Um, having worked primarily in the City of London, it's, um, it's a superb service that they provide. And if you want somebody, whether it's from counter-terrorism or the police, to come in and help you to run an exercise, and it adds gravitas to the fact that you've got somebody from counter-terrorism helping to run that exercise with the board or the business or whatever, and it costs nothing to do it. Yeah. yeah.